Heavenly Father, please we pray, open our minds and our hearts uh, to your word today. Bless us through your word, we pray. Speak to us and encourage us through it. Help us to understand more about uh, you, the holy God, and what that means if we are to be your people, a holy people. Amen. Uh, 1992, uh, Jim Packer. Uh, Jim Packer is a great contemporary Christian theologian. Uh, he published a book entitled A Passion for Holiness. And Jim, in his opening chapter of his book, quoted a poem by Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling. It was a poem called The Way Through the Wood. And it says this. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again. And now you would never know that there was once a road through the woods. Uh, For Jim Packer, this poem sums up the present state of the church. Uh, A concern for holiness is like the road through the woods that was closed many years ago and is now so overgrown you wouldn't even know it had been there. Uh, Whereas once there was a passion for holiness in Christian circles, these days uh, it has been largely lost. Uh, When was the last time that you had a conversation with somebody about the topic of holiness? It's a sobering observation by Jim Packer on the church scene from this great evangelical statesman who has lived long enough to be able to make that sort of judgment. In how many churches today could it be said that holy living was top of the church's agenda? Uh, Churches often value success and numbers. Uh, Some value spectacular manifestations of God's power and his spirit. Uh, Some are all about growing and growing in head knowledge. But what about holy living? As we think about the new vision for our church here in Cherrybrook, uh, will holiness feature in our thinking as we develop the vision of what we're all about together? And how about in your own personal lives? How high up on your agenda is living a holy life uh, to be godly and to be distinct? Uh, Put it this way, uh, what is your goal in life? What is your ambition looking ahead to the next 30 years? Uh, Is it to live a holy life? Is that what ultimately matters to you? Or is your ambition elsewhere in success or popularity? Uh, Moving it down to a micro scale. uh, What does a good day look like for you? Is it a day when you've managed to tick off everything you had to do on your to-do list? Is that a successful day? Or is it a day when you can look back and say, today I can see that I have acted in a godly and a holy way? Well, in our journey through the book of Leviticus, we come today to this section, uh, chapters 17 to 22. Uh, These chapters are often referred to as the Holiness Code. It's all about holy living. And if holy living has become neglected in church life and in our own personal lives, these chapters are very timely. Uh, They encourage us to recover the priority of holiness, uh, to reopen the road and to reroute our lives down it. As we walk through this life, this is the path that we need to chart every day if we're trusting in Christ. And what I propose to do this morning is this. Uh, It's ambitious, uh, but it's well worth while doing. 
we're going to try and locate uh, Leviticus chapters 17 to 22 in the whole sweep of salvation history in the Bible. In other words, we're going to try and get an overview of the Bible's teaching on holiness. We're going to start with God's character, and then we're going to move from creation uh, to fall to redemption, and finally to the new creation, tracing the Bible's united story from beginning to end. And we're going to locate holiness in that framework. I don't know about you, but I find it really exciting when I see how the Bible's teaching fits together on a topic. It's a bit like one of those 3D pictures. Once you get it, it pops out, and it is wonderful. So as in Star Wars, we're going to use the hyperdrive uh, to move quickly through that which comes before and after Leviticus, but we were going to slow down and come out of hyperdrive when we come to these sections in Leviticus. And along the way, we're also going to structure our investigation uh, with three questions. Firstly, what is holiness? Uh, secondly, what does holiness in God's people practically look like? And thirdly, why is holiness in God's people important. Okay, what is holiness? What does it look like? Why is it important? Uh, We're going to consider these three questions firstly in the Old Testament, what it meant for Israel, and then these three questions applying them to what it means to us today, the New Testament church. That's where we're going. Got it? Anyone want to go home? You're with me for the ride. Excellent. Great. Okay. So let's start off then. What is holiness. And to answer that question, uh, we need to start with God. For throughout the Bible, God is described as holy. Uh, God's holiness is everything that makes God, God. It's what places God in the unique category of one. It's It's thought that the root meaning of the Hebrew word for holiness means set apart, distinct. It's the qualities of God's character that set him apart from everything and from everyone. It's his majesty, his sovereignty, his awesome power. Look at Exodus 15 verse 11. It says this, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? But we can go deeper. Uh, God's holiness is particularly associated with his moral purity, his perfection, his total separateness from sin and from evil. Uh, Look at Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. It says this, My God, my Holy One, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So let's start then this charting of the Bible's storyline on this whole topic of holiness. In the opening chapter of the world's creation, we find the Holy God. But there he is, communing with a holy people, in a holy place. So the first human beings, they are made in God's image. They reflect his perfect moral perfection. In the beginning, there is nothing that taints them. 
They are sinless. They are without any evil. They are holy. And they commune, they live with the holy God in a holy place. I'm referring, of course, to the Garden of Eden. It's like a sacred sanctuary. And yet what happens? With their sin, with their fall from grace, paradise is lost. Now one aspect of God's holiness is His holy justice. God is morally pure. And because of that, God acts in justice. He acts in judgment, which means when His people rebel against Him, He must punish them. And hence now, the unholy people are ejected from the presence of the holy God. They are banished from the holy place, the sacred garden sanctuary. And they and the whole creation are now bound to a life of futility, of decay and death. God's holy justice calls for that. But not only does God's holy justice express itself in justice, God's holiness also expresses itself in love. Uh, God's holy love means that He is gracious. He is compassionate. Uh, He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Look at Exodus 34, verse 6. It says this, The Lord, the Lord... The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So God's holiness expresses itself in justice, but also in love. Now, if you've been with us in our series in Romans, uh, chapters 9 to 11 have been all about God choosing a people for himself. Uh, We've seen, of course, out of his elective love, God chooses Israel as his own. And through his people, we've seen he's going to bring blessing and restoration to all the people of the world. And so now, as we look at Israel, two aspects of human holiness become clear. Firstly, Holiness is a status given. In taking a people for himself, God declares them holy. It's a status that he grants as a gift through his grace. He chooses them, he rescues them, he redeems them, and then makes them holy. Leviticus 22, verse 32 says this, Speaking, uh, God speaking to Israel, I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Uh, when you read these chapters, particularly chapters 21 to 22 in Leviticus, the, the phrase, I am the Lord who makes you holy, is a repeated refrain. So firstly, holiness is a status given by God. It's an undeserved gift he gives to the people he chooses. But holiness is also, secondly, a lifestyle to be embraced 
by God's people. So God's gift of holiness is then the basis of an appeal for a life of holiness. You see, obedience, it's not an optional extra. It's not like when you go into McDonald's and they say, do you want to upsize and supersize as an optional extra? Holiness is not like that for God's people. God calls his holy people to be holy in their daily lives because he is holy. Leviticus 19 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's chosen people are to shun evil and to embrace joyful obedience. Their lives are to reflect the moral purity of God's holiness. So, that's the first thing we've seen. Uh, What is holiness? Secondly, what does holiness in God's people look like? Uh, God's people are called to be holy because their God is holy. But that's all very well, but what does holiness look like in everyday life? What does it mean to be holy? Well, uh, the good news is this. Uh, God does not leave his people in the dark. God gave his people laws which outline the contours of holiness. Uh, These laws are very comprehensive. Uh, They covered every aspect of life. Uh, Leviticus 17 to 22, these chapters are often referred to, as I've said, the holiness code. Uh, The laws in these chapters could be grouped under two main headings. Holy living is about, firstly, how people relate to God, and then how they relate to each other. So, firstly, how people relate to God. And here again, you could break it down into two subject sections. Firstly, It means total devotion to God. Uh, One dimension of holy living for God's holy people was that they were to be totally devoted to God, to love Him, and to be faithful to Him alone. Uh, Holiness is unwavering allegiance. Look at Leviticus 19, verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. You see, to turn to false gods was unimaginably detestable. Uh, It was idolatry and it was betrayal. You see, to be holy was firstly to worship God with a pure and undivided heart. But there was a second aspect to this way we should relate to God as holy people. And it was this, to approach God as he said we should approach him. Uh, Atoning sacrifice was the maintenance tool that God gave his people to enable them to continue to relate to a holy God. Look at Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood... And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, we've seen it, haven't we, in Romans. 
uh, the atonement, the atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice where the animal is shed and takes the punishment of the people in their place. Uh, the second half of Leviticus 22 specifies the type of animals that were to be used as the sacrifices. Uh, they were to be pure animals uh, without blemish. So God lays down how his people should approach him. Uh, they shouldn't just sacrifice out in the field. They should bring their sacrifices to the tent of meeting and to the altar. They shouldn't sacrifice to other gods. They should sacrifice to him alone. And all of this was what it meant to be a holy nation. They were to be different to all the other nations, set apart and distinctive in the way that they related to God. They weren't to borrow ideas from the nations around them. So that's the first thing it means. Uh, what does holiness in God's people look like? Firstly, relating to God. Secondly, relating to others. Uh, a lot of these commands in these chapters deal with how God's people were to relate to each other. And you can conveniently break them down into two sub-areas. Uh, I've just, just entitled them uh, sexual and social. Conveniently, they both begin with S. How wonderful. Uh, many of the commands in these chapters concern sexual relationships. In fact, the whole of chapter 18 and half of chapter 20 is about sexual relationships. Uh, chapter 18 uh, outlines who they were not allowed to marry. Uh, it forbids adultery. It forbids homosexuality. It forbids bestiality. Uh, the chapter is headed up by the command in verse 3, and it says this. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. But holiness not only shaped how God's people lived sexually, but also socially. In Leviticus 19, holiness is expressed in how they were to care for the poor, uh, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the weak, the elderly, the foreigner, and for parents. Uh, holiness is expressed in what we saw in the kids' talk, in not stealing, in not lying, in not hating and in not cheating. And all these commands can be gathered into one basket with the one title above them. Love others. Leviticus 19 verse 18 sums it all up. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, holiness and love, they are close cousins for God's people to be holy in the way they related to each other required them to love each other. Their holiness was to be comprehensive. It was to permeate every aspect of their lives. And it was to be that every day of the year. So thirdly, uh, why was holiness important for God's Old Testament people? Well, I can see three reasons, and happily, they all start with P. Uh, purpose, presence, 
and punishment. Uh, Firstly, purpose. The first reason that holiness was important for God's people is that, that it was central to God's purpose for them. If God's people were holy as God was holy, they would be a living example of what holiness was. They would, in fact, be a mirror image of what God was on earth, a personification of God's holiness, albeit in a limited and a flawed way. The distinctive shape of their holy lives would be a powerful witness to the existence of a holy God. And in this way, the holy nation would draw other nations away from the worship of their false gods to the worship of the one true God. There would be a light in the world. They would be a kingdom of priests. They would be mediators, bringing other nations to the one true God. Look at Exodus 19, verse 5. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So firstly, purpose. Secondly, presence. Holiness was important for God's people because of God's presence among them. The holy God chooses a holy people, but it doesn't stop there. Remarkably, the holy God comes to live amongst his people. The king comes to live in the camp. Uh, The tabernacle was effectively uh, a tent temple, and it was situated in the middle of the encampment for the Israelites in the desert. And the tabernacle itself, this tent temple, consisted of an outer room, the holy place, and this inner room, the most holy place. And this was where the holy God resided. And the priests could enter the tabernacle, but only once they had ritually cleansed themselves. And here we see the tension. Unholy people and their holy God do not mix. When the two meet, there is a combustible reaction. It's like mixing an alkaline metal with water. Maybe remember doing that in chemistry. Uh, Two of Aaron's sons, of course, didn't observe the correct procedure, and they were consumed by fire. So, purpose, presence, thirdly, punishment. This is the third reason holiness was important, because disobedience was disastrous. Uh, Leviticus 17 to 22 doesn't just say, do this, don't do that. It lays down penalties for disobedience. Maybe you picked up on some of them as we were reading those, uh, those sections of the text. Of course, it talks of the disobedient being cut off from God's people and from God. It speaks of God setting his face against the disobedience. They become his enemy. Uh, it warns Israel that if they disobey, they will be vomited out of the land, expelled from it. Uh, Some forms of disobedience even called for the death penalty by fire or by stoning. When you read these chapters, you can't help but be struck by what a serious business holy living was and how seriously God took it. 
Uh, the penalties were terrifying. So what do we then see as we chart the remainder of the story of Israel in the Old Testament? Uh, Israel, of course, fails. Rather than holiness, Israel opts for unholiness. Far from exclusive service of the one true God, Israel turns aside to the service of false gods. And as God warned, the land vomits them out. They are taken as slaves. They are conquered by the other nations and taken away into exile. And God withdraws his presence from his people. If you have time, uh, read from the prophet Ezekiel, chapters 8 to 11. Because there we see the terrifying account of God's glory leaving first the temple and then leaving the nation. It's a picture of God's presence being withdrawn from his sinful people. And so thereafter, the world lies in darkness. And four centuries pass. But then a light enters the darkness. And then something startling happens on this story of salvation history. Then the Holy One comes again to live amongst his people. When Jesus asked Peter if he is going to desert him, as many others were doing at the time, Peter's response is startling. He says this in John 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you realize how staggering those words are? Peter is saying to this man, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. Thirty years later, uh, Peter again affirms Jesus' holy moral purity. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he says this, reflecting back on what he had seen of the earthly life of Jesus. He committed no sin, not even once, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Picking up on Leviticus 19, verse 11, Jesus was the perfect, sinless one. And yet, what do we see? On the cross, the Holy One becomes unholy. On the cross, the Holy One immerses himself in the sewer of sin. And on the cross, the Holy One does that to redeem a holy people for himself. On the cross, Jesus incurs the penalty for our sin. He is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus gets cut off from the presence of the Father. That is why on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the Father sets his face against the Son. On the cross, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. He is rejected, he is abandoned, and he is forsaken for our sin. Jesus is vomited out. He is burnt in the fire. And he is put to death in our place. And that is the true horror 
And that is the true anguish of the cross. And yet he does that for you and he does that for me. And in doing that, he redeems a holy people for himself. What is holiness for God's New Testament people? Firstly, it is a status given. It is a gift. It's what in Romans we've been seeing is justification by faith. Being declared holy, righteous before God. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says this. Speaking of Christians, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And as with God's Old Testament people, holiness is not only a status given, but also a lifestyle to be embraced. Uh, God's gift of holiness is the basis of an appeal for a life of holiness. Uh, we saw it two weeks ago in Romans 12, if you're with us. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Living each day, not bringing an animal sacrifice, but bringing the sacrifice of our lives. Living each moment to seek to please him, to be holy. It's startling that when we get to 1 Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter applies God's call in the Old Testament in Leviticus for his people to be holy to the New Testament church. Uh, look at 1 Peter 1 verse 14. As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. He's talking about before they were Christians. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And then he, he quotes Leviticus. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So let's move from what holiness is for God's people. What does holiness in God's people look like? What does it mean for us to be holy in our lifestyle? And here again, God does not leave us in the dark because the principles are exactly the same. Firstly, how we relate to God. As you recall, one aspect of that is how we approach God. We approach him as he's told us to approach him. Uh, holiness involves relating to God in the distinct way he has commanded in the Bible. Uh, we can only come to the holy God by means of faith in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Of course, uh, is that a popular concept in our society today? Uh, our society today is described as pluralistic. And Christianity is seen as narrow and exclusive. And yet, we do not have liberty to move away from God's, what God's word says. We can only approach him in the way he has prescribed through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, through faith in his blood. And the second aspect of what holiness looks like for God's people in the way we relate to God is not just approaching as he prescribes, but also being totally 
devoted to him. Are we not always vulnerable to other things or other people displacing God from the throne of our lives? What is the primary love of our lives and our hearts? Is there anyone or anything we look to apart from God for our primary meaning and our primary security in life? What or who do we believe we have to have to be truly happy? It may be money, it may be work, it may be relationships. Jesus warns us we cannot serve two masters. Whatever it be, if it is the primary love of our hearts, the Bible has a word for it. It's called idolatry. We worship a false God. And God's word prescribes the remedy for God's people. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14. Flee. Flee. Flee from idolatry. Be totally devoted in God. Allow nothing else to have that primary love of our hearts and our affections. So that's the first aspect of holiness for God's people, how we relate to God. Secondly, how we relate to others. And then again, the two subsets. Firstly, our sexual behavior. Uh, You often, of course, hear people today argue that what they do in the privacy of their own bedroom is their business. But God says it is very much his business. His people are to be holy in their sexual behavior. Our sexual standards are to come from God's word, not from copying what others around us think is acceptable. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 to 8 applies holiness to sexual relationships. And it says this, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means holy. You should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So, as God's people, uh, we need to be distinct, set apart, holy in this area. That sex is God's good gift. And it's to be enjoyed in the context of a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. As Christians, our concern for sexual holiness should also affect what we watch on telly, what websites we visit, and where we allow our eyes and our minds to wander. And then the second aspect of what it looks like in our holy living, in terms of how we relate to others, is social. Our social behavior. Holiness expresses itself in loving, honest relationships with others, uh, living distinctively as God's people in every sphere of life. It's comprehensive in the workplace, in the school, in the college, in the home, in our communities, in the 
church. It should permeate every aspect of our lives. And here again, if we were to summarize what it looks like in the way we are to treat others, we could summarize it in one word. Has anyone got it? See if you've been listening. What's the word? Begins with L. Oh, thank you. Love, of course. Love is this catch-all which summarizes how God's people should live and treat others. Uh, Look at 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So the question I have this morning is this. If you're trusting in Christ, are you loving towards others? At your funeral, would those who know you well describe you when they give your eulogy as loving? Because you see, love is central to holiness. And finally then, why is holiness important for God's people? Uh, Purpose, if we are not holy as individuals and as a church, we're never going to fulfill God's purposes for us in the world. Uh, Holiness is indispensable to our witness to a watching world. The church now is now a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's important to remember when we think about our vision statement. We are a royal priesthood, mediators, bringing other other people to the holy God. So purpose, then presence. Uh, We're not going to spend any time on this because we saw this last week when we looked at cleansing. But by way of brief recap, God lives in the heart of Christians through his spirit and in the midst of his people, the church. And therefore, we should live holy lives individually and corporately together. And the third P is interestingly not punishment. It's not a P really, but Discipline. Uh, Let me explain. Those who truly trust in Christ need not fear punishment for their disobedience. Uh, Christ has paid that on the cross. However, if the Christian willfully opts for unholiness, God will not stand by with indifference. Uh, God is driven by his holy love. God is like a parent who is passionate for his children to be the best that they can possibly be as people. And therefore, when we stray, he doesn't punish us in a punitive sense, but he does discipline us. And he can bring times of hardship into our lives to bring us back from the disastrous path of disobedience. He doesn't do it to punish us, but to discipline us as would a loving parent 
of a child. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 10. Our fathers disciplined us for a while, while as, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. In my own life, when I've considered leaving the path which I know God has for me, when I've considered rebelling, I thought to myself, it's a bit futile really, because at the end of the day, I'm only going to stray and wander through the bramble bushes, and God is going to bring me back to the path eventually as his child. But I'll have scars, I'll be ripped by the thorns, I might as well stay on the path. So, in closing, I want to just finish off this glorious trajectory of holiness. I want to trace it to its conclusion. I want to show you its ultimate end point in God's purposes, because it is staggering. The goal to which God is moving all things, and it's simply this. The holy God living in a holy place with his holy people. At the final judgment, God's holy justice will banish and burn everything that is not holy from his creation. All those not already made holy through Christ are cut off forever. Through judgment, Christ cleanses the world once and for all time. He then makes it again a holy place. The unholy defiled place shall be restored to a holy place. And in that holy place, God's holy spotless people shall live in loving delight and communion with each other and with the holy God. Ephesians 5, God's people are likened to a bride who is finally presented spotless and radiant holy. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 25 onwards. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If you're trusting in Christ today, that is your ultimately, ultimate destiny. To be without any blemish, to be without any stain, to be without any wrinkle. Everything which mars and defaces the image of God in you now, removed forever. And in Revelation 21, of course, we're given this picture of God's redeeming purposes finally fulfilled. God's holy people living with God's holy God in a holy place. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's our end point in Christ. Perfection, purity, delight, joy, unending. That's the trajectory where we're going. 
if we trust in Christ, God gives us the status of being his holy people. And then he calls us, live a holy lives, because that is ultimately where I am taking you. Let's embrace that path as God's people together every day of our lives, helping each other and living glorious lives to God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this topic of holiness uh, is staggering when we see what it means, when we chart uh, its impacts and its implications for us as people who are trusting in Christ. Please, we pray, give us a deeper heart and passion for holiness, for purity, to be more like you, and for the sake of your purposes in the world and your purposes in our lives. Please, we pray, help us increasingly to glorify you through the lives we live. Amen.